Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Randy Franz as he shares this week's message. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see everybody here. Hope your air conditioning's working. Well, today, you're going to hear about two expectations of God that many in our culture have. Even among those who claim belief in Christianity, and I say even among them because they are expectations that sound right, but they are in fact misconceptions. And if we hold to them, we can be led astray from God's promises or we can lead others astray. So when we are done, I hope that your expectations will be clear and certain on these two matters, uh, along with being clear and certain about where our expectations come from. There, I, I'm focusing on two. There are many other expectations we have of God and many other misconceptions, but I've selected these two mainly because they are so common. No matter what your expectations of God are, I want to make sure you remember this. Base our expectations of God on Scripture, not culture. Again, let's base our expectations on Scripture, not culture. That's going to be important. Now, we expect God to do what He says, do we not? The trouble is, what He says is often misconstrued by us either from false teaching or lack of biblical knowledge or lack of biblical training or understanding. Frankly, sometimes we just don't like what God says, um, or maybe we don't agree with what God says. So we, we may try to ignore it. We may try to dismiss it. We may just try to make it fit our preconceptions. So I'll give you a quick example. Someone says, my God, my God would never fill in the blank. My God would always fill in the blank. As soon as you hear that, you can be sure they're about to break the first and second commandments, <laughs> which is you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make any carved image or any likeness of God. This is called idolatry. This leads to a wrong expectation of God because it is not based on Scripture. And Scripture, as we know, is God's Word. It's holy. It's perfect. It's pure. So anytime we go outside of that, we're in danger. So let's dive in and see what these two expectations are and how we can be sure to lead ourselves and others to the truth of God's Word. So here we go. Number one. God is all-loving. God is all-loving. Have you heard that before? Yes, I'm sure we have. And it's an easy misconception to make. I, I will grant you that, because the Bible says very directly, what does it say about God? God is love. 1 John 4.16, God is love. So, if God is love, if His very nature is love, 
if he is the definition of love, if, if, God is, if love is defined in the person of God, and he says things such as he wishes that none would perish but all that come to repentance, and the love of the Lord never ceases, well then, if he loves enough to forgive even the most heinous of sinners, then shouldn't we conclude that God is indeed all-loving? It's an easy conclusion to come to. And I would say, let's take this a little further. If God's all-loving, then he certainly wouldn't want to send people, you and me, to a bad life, to difficulties. He certainly would not want us to, to send us to hell for a few minor indiscretions or sins we commit, would he? But how many times have you heard people say, a loving God would never send people to hell? What kind of loving God would throw people into torment and misery forever? My God would never do that. That's idolatry. So, yes, God is all love. But we can't stop there, because that is just one of his attributes. God is also holy. He is pure, righteous. He's also just. And he is judge. So yes, he's all loving, but he's also just. He's judge. He's many things. We don't get to pick and choose which attributes of God we accept. He is who he is. Whether we want him to be a certain way does not change the reality that God's attributes are what they are. And the good thing is he has told us in his word what they are. They are many. They are varied. We spent several months earlier this year in our adult core class going through a wonderful series on the attributes of God. It was fantastic. And they were fascinating. Uh, very illuminating on the attributes of God. Um, sometimes scary, his attributes, I'll, I'll be honest. Um, but very enlightening. Uh, if you get a chance, I would encourage you, uh, ask Pastor Robert or I to, I think we can, we can send those resources to you. Uh, if you didn't take advantage of that, look at that. It's a great series. Anything, one of the... One of the key things that we learned in there is that God can be loving and just at the same time, at the very same time. He can at the same time forgive heinous sinners and also condemn unbelievers who may outwardly appear to be good citizens, but he can do those two things. Um, I think of an example of a good parent, okay? A child steps into the street without looking. The mother or father is loving the child by justly pulling them back. And if it's a little too harsh and it maybe hurts their arm, that's okay. That's a loving act that's just at the same time. When a child lies to a teacher, let's say, the mother or father is loving by disciplining and punishing that child to teach him or her not to do it again. In this case, justice certainly is the loving thing to do. Well, God is not only loving and good, his, he is good beyond our conception of good. He is so good 
that he can't look the other way when it comes to sin. Just as an earthly judge is bound by the tenets of law to punish wrongdoers, even more so does God judge those who have wronged him. And this is not unfair. God has given every single person whom he created the opportunity to understand that he is God. Now you may say, how is that possible when some have not had the Bible? Maybe some have never been in a church to hear about God. What about those who were alive before the Bible was printed in the 1400s? Well, Romans 1 says what can be known about God is plain to all people because God has shown it to them since the beginning of creation in the creation itself. We see God's incredible handiwork all around us. You look up at the stars, the sun, the moon, the clouds, puppies and birds and kittens, flowers, trees, mountains, the unfathomable human eye, our brain, this one of our brains, more powerful than the most powerful computer that will ever be devised. Everything that is made is so obviously created by a designer that God says in Romans 1, people have no excuse for denying him, for denying his existence. And at the same time, he's given every one of us a conscience. Yeah, so that we know right from wrong. Even if you haven't read a word of scripture, you know it's wrong to lie, to steal, commit adultery, murder, blaspheme, etc. This, of course, is God's moral law, his, his commandments, his Ten Commandments, written by God on tablets of stone and written on our hearts via our conscience. If a person murders another person, a just society understands that that person should be punished. So if someone murdered one of your loved ones, you wouldn't want a judge to look the other way and just say, oh, well, I'm an all-loving judge, so the murderer can go free. That would not be just. That would not be fair. Nor would that be loving. And that's just our civil courts. God is so holy. He is so just that he judges not only murderers, bank robbers, but he also judges liars, thieves, and adulterers. You see, God is perfect and good. He has to judge those who break his law. He says all liars will have their part in the lake of fire, Revelation 21. He says no idolaters, no adulterers, nor thieves will inherit the kingdom of God. So I would say this is not inconsistent with his love. We may think this is harsh or unfair, but it's not inconsistent at all. He disciplines those he loves. Just as a mother and father discipline their children because they want them to grow up and be healthy, productive, responsible adults, God teaches us through discipline and reproof. Look what he says in Revelation 3, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. 
And because God is love, He has also made a way for you and I to be with Him despite our sin. That's amazing. In fact, He loved us so much that He paid the penalty for our sin. Most of us in here know this. That while you and I were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then He rose again three days later to defeat death. And through no merit of our own, He offers this new life to us purely because of His love and His goodness. Hallelujah. I really like how theologian Sinclair Ferguson puts it. It's up on the monitor. The only place you can be sure that God is love is in the cross of Christ. And this is the essence of the gospel. So, the wrong expectation is that God is all loving. But the right expectation, God is loving and also just, holy, and righteous. So a reminder is up there, base our expectations of God on scripture, not culture. Okay, number two. This is the second one. We'll spend a little more time here. God is all forgiving. God is all forgiving. How many of you have heard that? It's pretty common, because we want that. And what do we mean by all forgiving? Most people who claim that, that this is the case, they mean that he has forgiven and will forgive every person, the sin of every person who has ever lived for all time, for here and evermore. Well, let's start with this. God does not forgive all people for eternity. The Bible does not say God is all forgiving. The Bible says he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And if you think this is unfair or unjust, well, guess what? The Apostle Paul beat you to that thinking. He anticipated this in, later in Romans 9, where he says, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? In other words, are you God? Am I God? Did you or I form the entire universe, speak it into existence? Do we create human life? Can we create anything out of nothing as God did? In other words, you and I, we don't get to make the rules in God's kingdom, do we? Scripture declares that God does forgive sin beyond what we should expect, but the truth is, you really want to know the truth, he should forgive none of us. Not one. It's only because of his marvelous grace, abundant mercy, that he does forgive some. And yet he also gives just punishment for some. And Isaiah gives us the example. He, he cries out in his prophecy, that only a remnant of the multitudes of Israelites would be saved. Only a remnant. 
Romans 9.28 says, For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. There's a sentence. Jesus himself declares that there is sin that is unforgivable. Look at Matthew 12.31 and 32. Here Jesus tells the Pharisees that God can and will forgive sin of every kind except one. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Heck, in the very next verse, you see it up here, Jesus says God will even forgive those who malign Jesus himself. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. The Bible is filled with examples of those who rejected God and were not forgiven for their sins, but yes, cast into hell. God even names individuals at various times, uh, such as Lot's wife, Pharaoh, Judas Iscariot, the prophets of Baal, and Asherah, and 1 Kings, and on and on and on. The Bible's absolutely clear that the unrepentant who blaspheme God's name rightly earn for themselves judgment in hell. The unrepentant who reject faith in Jesus Christ earn for themselves judgment in hell. The unrepentant who serve other gods, which is called idolatry, yes, earn for themselves judgment in hell. Three times in the book of Romans, in the first chapter, Paul writes that God suffers idolaters only for a little while before he finally gives them over to what they want. This is actually what they desire. And then he tells the consequences. Look at Romans 2.2. 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. It rightly falls on those who practice such things. Look at the next verse, Romans 2.5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Notice that God's wrath and judgment, and yes, unforgiveness, are rightly given in that first verse and described as righteous in the second verse. The unrepentant are not unfairly judged. They store up wrath for themselves. They receive what is due to them. This is right and fair. I repeat, this is right and fair. Now, there is no doubt that this is hard for us to accept. I grant you that. We love to focus on God's forgiveness and love because we all know how much we need his forgiveness and love. We absolutely need it. We know we sin. We aren't perfect. That's abundantly clear. And the thought that God might not save you or me or a loved one from his wrath for eternity, it horrifies us. It should horrify, horrify us. And yet, our perspective, I'm afraid, is too easily skewed. Well, consider the fact that we aren't good. That no one is morally good according to God's word. According to God's standard, no one is righteous. No, not one. We are enemies of God through wicked works, the Bible says. And so, considering this... No one deserves God's forgiveness or love. 
and if you've read through the book of Job before, in the closing chapters of the book of Job, God provides just a wonderful summation of the difference between him and us. He, he, he does it with a, a searing barrage of questions that makes it obvious to Job who is in charge. It takes 73 verses <laughs> for God thundering questions and statements at Job for it to stop Job's mouth. It literally stops his mouth from blaming God for his misfortune. Here's just a snapshot at the beginning of this section, starting in Job chapter 38, verse 4. Where were you? This is God talking to Job. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? He goes on. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, this far you shall come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? God continues, have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Later, God asks Job, do you know the ordinances of heaven? Can you establish their rule on earth? And then God brings this section to a, to a close with this. In chapter 40, verse 2, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Well, if you were on the receiving end of that, I'm sure we would all respond exactly as Job did. He's been put in his place so thoroughly that the only answer he has is no answer. He says, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. So once again, I would say, are you God? Am I God? Do you or I form the entire universe? Do we create human life? Can we create anything out of nothing? In other words, we don't get to make the rules in God's kingdom. Therefore, when God says he will judge the living and the dead, he will judge them. Some for eternal life and some for eternal damnation. Look at what he says in Psalm 1. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Peter writes in 2 Peter three of Jesus' second coming and says, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. 
book of Revelation, we know, is filled with God's judgment on unrepentant people, including the final judgment in the last days. So stay with me. I know this is tough. Revelation 20, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's a guarantee. Next chapter. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable. As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is hard. But again, what are we basing our expectations on? We're basing them on, on scripture, not on culture. Now, I will say that it's not only the unrepentant who are subject to God's judgment. Even the repentant fall short of God's salvation under this condition when they don't trust in Christ for salvation. You see, it, only, it does no good to only repent of sins. That's merely saying you're sorry and you won't do it again. You should be sorry and you shouldn't do it again. That's true. So repentance alone will not avail you, avail you of God's saving grace. Just as we know that the cross, Jesus going to the cross and giving his life is only part of the equation. His sacrifice certainly was sufficient to pay the penalty for our sins. There is no doubt about that. It is absolutely sufficient. Our Lord's mercy is an endless pool. David says in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from those who fear him. So, but where the person falls short in thinking, well, my God is all forgiving, so I'm okay, it's in the trust and faith department. It's right to fall on your knees. It's right to beg God for forgiveness. It's right to repent of your sins. And repentance means to turn away from your sins, to seek righteousness. So I am forgiven, you might say, okay, that is great and wonderful beyond words, but now what? Well, look at the target of David's words in Psalm 103. Removal of transgressions, a.k.a. forgiveness of sins, is for who? For those who fear and trust the Lord. This is the key. Trust in the Lord. Trust in Jesus Christ. God's forgiveness is endless for his chosen people. In David's day, that was the Israelites. Now, it's for all who trust in Jesus' death and resurrection. It's wonderful news. So the wrong expectation here is God is all forgiving. But the right expectation is that God doesn't forgive everyone. However, he does forgive everyone who repents and puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his righteousness. So we are not left without a remedy. So we have looked at two expectations of God and how to view them rightly. 
and how to view them according to scripture, not according to worldly assumption. Remember our theme again, base our expectations of God on scripture, not culture. Yes, I'm pounding that in. And so I want to close with this. As those who trust in Christ, as most of us here do, we know that the Bible is how he speaks to us. The Bible is his manual for all of life. It's his very words to us. They tell us who he is. They tell us who we are. They tell us how to relate to him and how he relates to us. They tell us the history of his chosen people. They tell us the future of where we are headed. The Bible also gives us his great, his grand promises for those who trust in him. The promises of everlasting peace, of everlasting life. But these are only for those who place their complete faith and trust in Christ. So how and why should you do that? Well, first, the why. Each of us is born into sin. This becomes clearer the longer we live without Christ. We hardly go a day without transgressing, transgressing God's moral law. Repeatedly, lying, stealing, even something small, coveting the things of this world, committing adultery in our hearts by looking at others with lust, and so on and so on. And Romans 6.23 tells us this lifelong pattern of sin earns us spiritual death. It not only keeps us out of heaven, it actually puts us where we want to be when we are in our sin. Hell. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 says. So we deserve prison all the way. We deserve it. It's what it is actually rightly due to us due to our sin. God pays us in death. The wages of sin is death. That's our payment. <laughs> so we're in big trouble when we stand before God, the perfect judge of all humanity. Keep in mind, he is the perfect judge of all humanity. Now, we touched earlier, an earthly judge is, is a good judge when he puts away criminals, especially the heinous ones. But God has a much higher standard than man. We looked on that a little bit earlier. He's so good and so holy and so pure, he'll make sure serial killers and mass murderers get their due sentence, yes, but it'll also punish the liars, the thieves, the blasphemers, and those who dishonor their parents. This is what a perfect judge does. Listen to what the Bible says. We, we cover this, that all liars will have their part in the lake of fire, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters or adulterers will inherit the kingdom of God. It goes on and says, but such were some of you. So again, we are without excuse. We've broken every one of these commandments a multitude of times. All we can do is throw ourselves on the mercy of the judge. That's what, when you're condemned in court, that's what happens. All you can do is throw yourselves on the mercy of, of the judge. And so this is where the good news comes in. God did something wonderful to save guilty sinners such as us. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin. 
He paid our penalty of death. When he came to earth in the body of a man, he willingly took our punishment upon himself in that death on the cross. Even better, he defeated death. He came back to life. And he offers us this victory over death, this over spiritual death, for those who put their faith and trust in him. Hallelujah. So now comes the how. How do you do this? And first, I want to cover what you can't do. You can't do enough good things to earn this victory. You can't offset your sin by feeding the poor or by going to church enough or being nice to old people like me. <laughs> this is like trying to bribe the judge. No amount of good works will undo the crimes that you've committed. All you can do is throw yourself on the mercy of the judge. And this is what is called repentance. It's not just acknowledging your sin, but it's turning from them, sincerely, genuinely desiring to pursue those things that God loves, genuinely rejecting the desires of the flesh, those sinful desires that get in the way. You can't be hypocritical by saying, I repent, but then you continue to go on desiring those things. That's just being a hypocrite. So you turn from sin, and then you place your faith in Jesus Christ and his payment that he already made for you. You trust in his promises, not anything else. He did it. He offers it to us as a free gift. And when you do that, when you repent and trust in Christ, God promises, and he cannot lie because he's without sin, he promises to forgive every sin you've ever committed and ever will commit and grant you everlasting life. He takes the death sentence off of you. You pass from death to life, literally. From everlasting death to everlasting life. He gives you a new heart and a new understanding. That's the evidence that you have repented and trusted Christ. It's called being born again. And Jesus says in John 3 that you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. Your birth was a miracle. Your second birth is even more of a miracle. And the miracle of this new birth is that God does change your heart. You come to love righteousness more than the fleeting things of this world. You come to know Jesus who is alive. And he comes alive to you in the pages of Scripture once you've done this. Not only that, God's Holy Spirit gives you a special kind of peace for the rest of your life. It's a peace that is unattainable by any other means. The Bible says it is a peace that surpasses human understanding. So no matter what happens, the rest of your earthly life, even the rotten situations that come up at times, you will have this peace because you know the one who forgave your sin is trustworthy and he is true and he does not lie. He is perfect and he is able to be trusted fully. You have this peace 
because you know the one who granted you the gift, the sure gift of eternal life with him. You know him. And this gift will never expire. And no amount of hardship will take it away. You can always bank on it. So to wrap up, this gracious, merciful, perfect, trustworthy God is the one who gives us his word so that we can know what to expect. As we have covered this morning, any of our expectations of God can only be correct when they are based on what God tells us in his word. Otherwise, their expectations built on worldly instruction that's almost always the direct opposite of what God intends for us. So let's be reminded one more time, and it's up on the monitor. I hope you tuck this in your heart, in your mind, when you walk out of here today, and you remember to base our expectations of God on scripture, not culture. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, you are a God of love, but you are so much more. You do forgive to the other uttermost, but you forgive those who place their faith and trust in you. You've given us an unimaginable gift, unfathomable. We cannot grasp that you would sacrifice yourself in that way. But Father, I pray that we would not go outside of of what you tell us and look to the things of the world for understanding. You've given us all we need to know for life and godliness in your word. You offer it to us freely. Praise be to you that you have preserved your word for us. That these thousands of years later, you still speak to us through your word, through the pages of scripture through the preaching and teaching, through the broadcasting of your word. Father, let us hold fast to you. Let us cling to you and your word with desperation. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. There are hardships. There are difficulties that we go through. Life is not always as it seems it should be. But Lord, you never leave us. You never forsake us. All praise and honor goes to you for that. Forgive us if we ever seek the things of the world and go outside of you. But Lord, knowing that you welcome us back, you forgive us as far as the east is from the west when we turn again to you, repent and trust in you. So Lord, I pray this morning that We would walk into this week loving you, worshiping you, spending time with you in your word, understanding the fact that you give us the right expectations of who you are. And when we do that, we walk in peace and we walk in safety. We thank you. We praise you in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, your only begotten. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. 
we encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.